Welcome back, guys. Surprise. Welcome to In the Pit, a new show for Rumble and Miss Entertainment. I will be your host, Chris Stolle, and joining me is host of Misery Point Radio, Mr. Michael Peacock. Whoa, what is up in the pit? In the pit. <laughs> or I add the uh, special effects. In, in the, the pit. pit. Oh, there you go. Throw that delay on there. That's all the effect I got on this mixer. (laughs) (laughs) It's terrible. You need a board op. Yes, I need a... Hey, donate to Patreon. It's right down below. I need a a board op. Awesome. (laughs) No, but uh, basically, this is something that I've been wanting to do for a very long time. And and, and quite honestly, talking with Mike and and setting up for him to do the, uh, the Breaking the Fourth Wall interview and setting up for me to come onto his show really lit a fire under my ass to say, you know what? I want to talk music, too. And uh, it's kind of ironic because today we weren't supposed to talk until uh, I forget when we set up for for your show. Uh, End of the month. End end of the month. And uh, I just I I don't know. Like I was screwing around with stuff for Realm of the Mist and I had Bon Jovi on in the background (laughs) uh, behind the scenes stuff of Bon Jovi, like his his, uh, induction to the Hall of Fame and shit. And it just it, it I was like. All instantly, I just grabbed my phone and messaged Mike. I'm like, "Hey, you want to do fourth wall, and in turn, you want to have a conversation about music?" I yeah, like, like right now. It. Yeah, I just feel like doing it. You know? So, uh, basically, I'm making an excuse for this might be a little rough around the edges for a first episode because of it was literally spur of the moment. But uh, for future references, when this releases as its own independent podcast, it will be a little bit more structured. But really, we're just going to sit here and talk music. Um, well, I'm honored to break the cherry of this show, so uh, thank you. Thank you so much. It's a pitted cherry. <laughs> <laughs> In the pit. In the pit. But uh, So, yeah, definitely. Um, again, we from, from the interview, which, by the way, thank you very much for, for joining me on that. That was awesome. Um, oh, hell yeah. But, uh, again, like you have followed music your, since basically your whole entire life. Uh, what were some of your influences, you know, for, for the style of music that you played? Well, I, I think it's important to differentiate that there was influences in the sense of, of getting into music in general, and then there was influences in the sense of playing music, right? And they, they sometimes there was a crossover and sometimes there wasn't. But um, I was big as I was a kid. I was really into um, kind of the, the early early 80s heavy metal. I mean, I was born in 75 and, you know, my dad was into like classic rock and stuff like that. So, I mean, he had like Black Sabbath and like Pink Floyd and, you know, like The Who and Jimi Hendrix and, you know, kind of all that, you know, British invasion rock um, plus, you know, some some pretty cool like Southern American rock, you know, Skinner and, and stuff like that as well, like, you know, Paul Simon. So I was a big fan of all that stuff. And then I had a, a friend in elementary school who had i remember he had a a poster of of dio the holy diver album cover with the fucking uh it was was just crazy i just remember going wow that's just really awesome and so i started listening to dio and then i started listening to maiden and then he was constantly showing me all these bands you know metallica at that time i was kill them all Mm -hmm. um was was their their first release and i was really into kill them all and ride the lightning and so so I, I really, you know, when I started listening to music, I would say that I was really into kind of like the the early rock, you know, kind of that stuff. And then and then I got into like heavy metal 
um, at an early age. And then when I started playing music, I really was more into like the the virtuoso kind of stuff, you know, like your your Satriani's and Steve Vai's and stuff like that. And then as I got better at playing, I wanted more and more and more extreme, more and more and more heavy. But I was also in that transition time. I was really big into the glam, man, like the hair metal. I love Rat. I fucking love Rat. Twisted Sister um, was, <laughs> yeah, fucking love Twisted Sister. And Rat was just so awesome, you know. And I liked like Poison and fucking Motley Crue and and Skid Row. You know, I like I liked all that shit, man. And it's really funny because even now that I'm really into like death metal and stuff, it's a guilty fucking pleasure. Like when one of those songs, like if Round and Round. Or like lay it down comes on the radio. I'm like I'm fucking listening to it, you know. Right. Um, and I remember when I was in sixth grade, we were in gym class in elementary school, and the teacher said, "Hey, I'm gonna let you bring one of your tapes, because um, yeah, we still had tapes back then, <laughs> and uh, you can bring a tape in, and I'll, I'll play it during PE class while we're like running around the gym and doing exercises." And so I brought in uh, "Slippery When Wet," <laughs> <laughs> nice. uh, Bon Jovi. And uh, they played it, and I, and I hadn't thought about it, but there's that song, Social Disease, yes, right? And yes. at the beginning of that song, it's people fucking. And um, <laughs> I, I forgot that was there, you know? And so we were running around the gym doing all of our shit, and then all of a sudden that song comes on, and people just stopped what they were doing. It was like, you know, that record scratch sound, like everything stopped. <laughs> and then uh, I got kicked out of class. and. Oh. Uh, yeah, I had to go to the principal's office, and I didn't get my tape back. <laughs> and then they called my parents, and they showed it to my parents, and my mom was super fucking pissed, and my dad was like, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you know you got to share that story with Bon Jovi. You ever have a Yeah, show? yeah, yeah. Well, next time Bon Jovi comes to my house, I'll, I'll be sure to remind him about that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so, you know, I was, I was, I was, into, I was into all that stuff, and, uh, you know, it, it's kind of like... It's fun to make fun of it because it was super glammy, you know, and everything. And But then you also have to realize at that time, even the bands that were heavy, like Venom and Slayer and Judas Priest, they all kind of look like that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there was like the girly shit. I mean, there was like super girly stuff like, you know, Cinderella and like Pretty Boy Floyd and stuff like that. Faster Pussycat, Hanoi Rocks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so and then there was like that look but that was kind of carried over into kind of more of a more of an evil sounding thing, you know, and twisted sister, I think like D Snyder, he was the perfect kind of harbinger of what was to come because he kind of really crossed genres. He was kind of this, this metal rock and roll dude, but he kind of looked like a chick, but he looked like a burly chick. So he's kind of nasty and fucked up looking and kind of took that element of glam, but made it more like horror glam. And, uh, so I was, I was really just into that stuff. And, you know, if you take, if you listen to stuff on just the music without the imagery in your head, it's, it's completely different. My friends, the band called Gwar, have you heard of them? Oh, I know Gwar. Yeah. I've been to Gwar shows. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Yeah, oh, fucking gore shows, man. You get covered in, like, blood-covered semen, and, you know, they're they're shitting all over you, and, you know, they're, yeah, they're, their shows are crazy. But, I mean, if you just listen to the music, it's really well-performed music with awesome, you know, melodic guitars and everything. So so part of part of what made that glam era so, so crazy was it was, at that time, MTV was really in its heyday in the videos. It was all about the videos, you know. 
And it was the look and the theatrics and kind of all that stuff went together. So a lot of times that even transcended the music. You'd have these musicians that were mediocre at best, but they just had that look that, that they capitalized on, you know? So, um, and then now if you, if you go and you see or hear those bands that used to look like that, they don't look like that anymore. It's like a bunch of fat 50 year old white dudes in their fucking jeans and, and wife beater t-shirts, you know? That's uh, <laughs> well, it, that's pretty much what they look like now. Well, it's funny you kind of you kind of paint that in that light because uh, one of the topics that I wanted to discuss tonight was uh, glam rock, uh, but you know, and its influence in, in music today, uh, and and the fact that it was a serious genre of music. Oh, um, for sure. You know, the '80s glam rock scene, but uh, you're right. It was a victim. It was a victim of commercialization. But it's funny that in in its own right, and you mentioned with Twisted Sister, and I, I I laughed. You saw me laugh when you were mentioning bands like fucking Faster Pussycat. Yeah. Uh, that even in glam rock, it had its own sub genres of of yeah. uh, of uh, musicians because uh, you had your radio safe bands like Cinderella and Poison and and you know and the like White Lion. But then you had bands that, quite honestly, like you think, you know, Social Disease was a bad song to play at a, at a uh, you know, at a gym in, a, in an elementary school. Pick anything <laughs> from Faster Pussycat or Jackal. Oh, yeah. You know? <laughs> Jackal. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned White Lion, too, because, you know, White Lion was that band that they were all actually quite accomplished musicians. And Vito Brada is, in my opinion, <laughs> one of the best guitarists that ever picked up a guitar and at the height of their popularity, he quit the business. Just just quit, up and quit, moved to Italy, took care of some family business, never fucking came back, right? And he, he might have come back to the States, but he never came back to the business, wouldn't do interviews, wouldn't do press, wouldn't talk about it. And to this day, from what I understand, if you ask him a music question, he's kind of a dick about it. He's like, dude, that was so long ago. He's like, I haven't done that in years, you know? Um, so I, I always thought that White Line was kind of that band that was that was kind of on the verge of really creating their own style of music. Um, I really actually liked that band. At least the first album I thought was pretty awesome. I think it was called Pride. Um, the second album I, I don't think I gave two shits about, but that first album I thought was really good. Well, I yeah, give, it, I give them credit on the second album. I think it was the one where they did the cover of Radar Love by Golden Earring. And, they did, uh, yeah. And I, th- I thought that was a great cover. You know, I, th- the problem is, is I can't think of any other song on that second album. That's I, like, that's <laughs> exactly it. You, there's no memorable songs on it. It's not that they're bad, you know, but they, you know, they just don't, they don't stand out on their own right. You know, you can't, you can't think. Of, you know, when I think of White Lion, I think of like Wait, right? That right. being the quintessential song. And then they had that that Uber ballad, uh, When the Children Cry, that had that really awesome twelve string. Uh, which I learned how to play, and I fucking bragged about that forever that I could play that song, and uh, that was that was a, a a pretty awesome badge of honor. Everybody was calling me a pussy, but <laughs> I could play that, and I could play "Wanted Dead or Alive," you know. So on the twelve string, I and I just thought I was the shit. <laughs> I was always scared of twelve string. I don't know. It's a, I know it plays yeah. like a six string, but I was always scared of it. I'm like, ah, it's six yeah. more strings. <laughs> There you go. Sounds great, but it scares me. But um, yeah. no, I, and that that was something I wanted to discuss because it does have such a bad reputation. But like when I sit down and I listen to shows on on like Sirius XM, for example, uh, there's a there's a channel devoted to the '80s hair band movement, '80s and '90s hair band movement called Hair Nation. <laughs> and I sit there and I I listen and you know they play the programs and they play Rat, they play Poison, they play Queensrÿche, they play 
you oh. know, Motley Crue, and you know, you're you're just sitting there, and it's like, like you said, you take you take away the imagery of spandex and uh, hair Aquanet, and <laughs> you really start to break down the fact that these guys were hella talented musicians. And there were some really, really strong songs that came out of that era, some of which never got radio play. Like, you know, for the, one of the best examples I can give, I you know, that comes to my mind is like everybody knows uh, Great White. And they mm-hmm. obviously they know the song Once Bitten, Twice Shy came off of the Twice Shy album. That's like yep. their uber hit. But to me, the greatest song that came off of that album was uh, uh, The House of Broken Love, which was just a slow, bluesy you know i love the guitars in that song um and i actually really liked the angel song um and i transposed all the piano music and learned how to play it on the guitar um and that was one of the first songs i ever played as a solo artist and i fucked it up man i just butchered it it was terrible (laughs) um but i so i learned it and i could play it and then i thought that that would translate into me being able to play it live which sadly was not the case but yeah house of broken love had that Really, really, really awesome, uh, very bluesy feel to it. And then they also did a cover of Babe, I'm Gonna Leave You, which is a Zeppelin song. Right. And that is probably the best Zeppelin cover I have ever heard. And I, I guess I never really got into Great White in general, but they had those select few songs. I always thought that Mark Kendall was a really underappreciated guitarist. I thought as far as guitarists go, he was kind of like Vito Brada. He kind of sat in the background. He really avoided the limelight. Uh, Great White, everything was all about Jack Russell, right. which is really funny because, you know, that's a fucking dog, right? And Jack right. Russell. Um, and, uh, so was but his haircut, I, I, by the way. <laughs> and then, yeah, right. And then, of course, they had that, that tragedy, you know, a few years back where they were playing that club and they had uh, some bad pyrotechnics and they caught the club on fire and people died. And that was pretty much the end of Great White because it was deemed to be the fault of their crew and uh, I mean, it, it sucks to place blame on it, you know, but but ultimately it was determined that that they weren't supposed to. There was a no pyrotechnics clause at the club and they did it anyway, right. you know, and uh, the club, as it turns out, was also partly at fault because they weren't up to fire code. <laughs> so they had two negatives going against them at that show. And the fucking cosmos said, today's the day, motherfuckers. This is it. This is we're going to we're going to call in these chips and it was just a sad, sad day. And I, I, you know, they never recovered. And then I I think, I don't know, was it Jack Kendall? One of the great white guys died in that show too. I think so. Um, so yeah, it was just a a sad, a sad thing, but, uh, I did, I did like a select few songs from them. The once bitten album, I can't think of a single song off that, that I, that I can even remember. So, um, yeah, so it goes. I mean, I'm kind of the same way. Like, uh, you know, like I mentioned Queensryche, for example, as, as an example. My favorite band of all time, by the way. Queensryche? Of all, of all time, I absolutely. Love them. I love them, but I'm going to say something that's kind of uh, to, to the Queensryche fans. Uh, it's kind of heresy. I actually okay. prefer Empire over Operation Mindcrime, as far as an album is concerned. Yes, it was a little bit more uh, radio friendly, but I thought the songs were a lot deeper. Yeah, I, I uh, Mind Crime is is my favorite album of all time, but I absolutely love Empire, and I, I thought that Empire had more. Um, it, it, Mind Crime was really a story, right? And, and if you didn't listen to the whole thing and learn the whole thing and commit the whole album 
to memory and really dig into it, Mm -hmm. you didn't really get the most out of it. The songs wouldn't have made sense to you. They weren't designed as singles, right? They had some singles that were good, and they they did okay. But when Empire came out, especially that song Empire, was very anthemic. It was a super powerful song. Um, So they had an awesome mix. Uh, Jet City Woman, uh, uh, written about Jeff Tate's wife, was a, a pretty awesome song, and of course, anybody in Seattle, Jet City is a nickname for Seattle, um, and of course, we have the, the the airports and the Boeing airstrips, and people like to go and look at the jets take off and things like that. Right. Um, so that was a great song, and another rainy night without you. So and, and, you know, Della Brown, which I think is a really, really, really awesome kind of a half ballad, but it's kind of a social commentary. So I, I definitely think that that album, aside from Mind Crime, is probably my my next favorite album. Um, but I do like to also go back to the old stuff because the old stuff was really, you know, Mind Crime ended the metal era of Queensrÿche, and right. they really kind of. You know, Empire had some metal vibe to it, but they really kind of backed off. But the first couple Queensryche albums, super thrashy, really fast guitars, shredding soul, like shredding face melting solos. Um, and then, you know, Empire kind of marked the the turning point. But it was also that because I'm a huge Queensryche nerd, that's really after that album, they started to have internal band struggles. And as a result of the power struggle, that's really when you started to see things sadly fall apart major issues between jeff tate and the other and you know uh uh mike wilton and chris DeGarmo. Uh, you know the songwriting teams they became factioned i wrote this song you wrote that song and then in the music business the money and recording is made by who gets the songwriting credit okay so if you play on an album but you don't write any of the songs you don't get the same amount of money so it, it turned into a a business fight and then there was a you know a whole big mess which we could do an entire episode just on that and i won't (laughs) bore you to tears with that story but but needless to say yeah empire um is a fantastic album and i don't fault you my friend um we may not be on the same page as far as that goes but i'm right there with you i mean it's it's kind of depends on you know what you listen to queensrike for and i'm a huge fan of concept albums. i love a story so, you know, Queensryche and then like even the Tommy from the Who and then, you know, all the King Diamond stuff, uh, you know, with like uh, Abigail and all that kind of stuff. It's just so awesome. Oh, yeah. I've got nothing against concept albums. I mean, one of the one of the all time greatest albums, you know, in my opinion, you know, and, and a lot of other people's opinions was a concept album. That's Pink Floyd's The Wall. But I mean, absolutely. But I mean, you know. I don't know. There's just something different. Like you, you mentioned a lot of great songs off of Empire. Of course, you forgot Silent Lucidity, um, <laughs> which was like their mega hit off of that album. But that was the mega hit. Honestly, though, not my favorite. <laughs> no, not not the favorite, but it was a mega hit. But quite honestly, what made me, I'll tell you, the first track was the one that made me say this was the better album because of how different of an opening it was for an album. And that was Best I Can. Yeah. And, and it's the not only was the sound completely different, like you said, they they kind of strayed away from the the heavy metal aspect and and went more. I I, I don't know what the correct terminology would have been, uh, but just the, the the tonality of the lyrics, what the song was about, how relatively dark it was, with yet still being a a inspirational song. Uh, in its own right, was just like, wow, this is some other level writing. It's funny you mentioned the inspirational aspect because that song got licensed to a bunch of commercials 
and like a bunch of, you know, causes that use that as kind of their vehicle. And um, yeah, they have a chorus, you know, and I won't let go, you know, and it, it just, it was very, it was very uplifting. And I, I think mm-hmm. that that's probably the only song of theirs that I think of all their albums really has that message. Um, yeah, great song. And I love the guitar work in that song too. So uh, yeah, really, really catchy. Great opening for sure. Uh, so, I mean, you know, that, but you know, as far basically the conversation that I wanted to have here was like looking back, even listening to, to the radio. And again, like you said, not watching the old music videos, not not seeing the old press photos, but just listening to the music and the genre that it was. I'm of the opinion that especially in today's music scene, not just not just rock and, and metal, but just music in general. I wonder if. Uh, glam metal, the, the 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 hair bands of the, of the eighties and nineties, if they never existed in the eighties and nineties, and if they came out today, would they have the same influential impact that they did back then? I um, don't think so, because it was a transitional time, and right now isn't really a transitional time. I think that they would probably still be respected. Like if let's you know, I mean, as a case in point, I mean, you know, like Brett Michaels is still around doing stuff, but he's doing his own thing, right? He's not playing that stuff anymore. He's kind of gone almost more country, kind of more rock Americana stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think if you strip away the imagery and you get down just to musicianship, it's all solid, but I, I don't think it will make a comeback. So I think that if it had not come out in that time frame, um, I think that you might have not seen some of the like more power metal-y bands, you know, like we'll say Dream Theater or, you know, stuff like that maybe would have, Fate's Warning, you know, might have taken a different approach to things. Um, but the 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 new wave of British heavy metal, like your Maidens, your Dio's, all that kind of stuff was still around and the sound was relatively similar. So the sound of glam really didn't have as much of an identifier as like the British heavy metal or the power metal or things like that. It was, it was kind of on that verge of rock and heavy metal. So it was influential because it was kind of a stepping stone. But now if it came out and there's already heavier stuff out there, it would really be more like a, well, I don't want to listen to heavy stuff. So I want to take a step back. But then if you're going to take a step back, now you're back into maiden and you're back into Dio and you're back into, some of that kind of stuff. So I think it would still be good and I think it would still be accepted and I think it would still be popular, but I don't think it would be influential. Well, the re- the reason I asked that question, and again, like, like I said, before even doing this, co- uh, the, this conversation, I was watching a behind the scenes of bands like Bon Jovi and, you know, from my own research, you know, Bon Jovi's like the, the standard for, for glam metal as far as it's still existing. Uh, yeah. The fact that he's getting ready to release another album this year, you know, is is unprecedented for a band that, you know, it, from his own words, shouldn't still be around. But he found a way to <laughs> reinvent himself. Um, he did without his core members. Without his core, even with the core members. I mean, he went through the transitions after uh, the Keep the Faith album. And some things hit, some things didn't, you know. But he, either way, he's kept himself relevant. A hundred million albums, you know, sold. The guy's now in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I mean, that's not bad for what was considered a 
fad in the 80s as far as the glam rock is concerned but yeah what brings me to it is like outside of people like bon jovi who who reinvented his music and his style to keep himself relevant in the modern times you look back and just out of all the bands that are still working and there are still some from the 70s i know maiden still goes out on tour once in a while and you know acdc when when they have actual rose up front because brian can't hear no more um he's back by the way yeah i did hear he was coming back um you know these guys these guys are still out there but for the most part the like you said the new wave of british heavy metal 70s early 80s bands have all kind of fallen by the wayside then you think sure. about like you were talking about with the grunge acts and the, uh, the, the 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 modern alternative acts a lot of them have disappeared that were the trends and fads but for some reason, whether they reinvented themselves or they're still just living off of their greatest hits, the glam bands haven't really diminished. They're still out there. They're still putting out albums and still touring. They are, and it's the nostalgia factor I think that kind of keeps them going. And you know, they're not they're not necessarily gaining new fans as much as retaining old fans. I think, um, and. You know, I, I use like uh, like Bon Jovi. I think is a good example. I mean, Bon Jovi now versus Bon Jovi thirty years ago is, is it's it's you wouldn't even know it was the same band, right? If if right. you didn't already know about them, you would listen to those songs and not even think. Even his voice sounds different. You know, the way he sings and and the kind of stuff he writes mm-hmm. um, actually kind of reminds me of like a like a John Cougar Mellencamp, but with a heavier edge, right? And that's kind of what Bon Jovi reminds me of. I would have said, but I would have said, but more now, Tom Petty, I mean. but yeah. I would have gone more Tom Petty, but yeah, I, I could see what you're talking about. So, you know, I, I think that a lot of those bands that are around, you know, like ACDC, you know, they're they're great bands, but sure, at some point, these guys have been around for so long, it's not their new stuff that people give a shit about. It really isn't. Like, mm-hmm. there could be a new ACDC album tomorrow, and people would buy the hell out of it, but, you know, if you went to an ACDC concert and they didn't play you know, fucking, you know, back in black or they didn't play, you know, fucking even jailbreak from back in the day, all, all those stuff that that's the that's the the bane of every performer that has played the same shit for 30 years. There's no way you can't play it. So now you've got to play a three hour concert, <laughs> you know, good luck trying to sneak something new in there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's still there. It's still relevant for sure. But it's it's a select few bands that have the staying power. I mean, Cinderella is, a, is an example I like to use. I think Tom Kiefer is a fantastic musician. He went through some some crazy bullshit with a nasty bout of throat cancer that literally killed his career for a few years. Mm-hmm. He came back. He couldn't hit the high notes. Um, so he then he worked on his voice. Now he can hit him again. So Cinderella still plays. Tom Kiefer still plays. And Tom Kiefer plays Cinderella songs because now there's a licensing issue. Um, but it's still good, right? He still does a good job, but the draw, you know, for instance, he's not playing stadiums, you know, he's playing, he's playing small venues, which honestly, as a music fan, I hate large venues. I fucking will never, ever in my life again, go to a show in a stadium. I won't, I don't give a fuck who it is. I won't go see a show in a stadium because it sucks. Um, I saw Tom Petty in a stadium and it was awesome. But I had good seats, and he was way the fuck out there, man. And I had to watch the show from a monitor. You know, right. I didn't pay two hundred and fifty bucks a ticket to watch TV. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but when I when I go and I see Queensrÿche and they play here locally in town, and I can go see them at a casino, 
with less than 500 people, and I can walk right up to the stage and watch Todd, the, the singer, who, by the way, is fucking legit, grab a fan's phone, take that phone and video himself and all of his band members with a fan's phone and then give it back to him and then fucking, you know, give him a, give him a dap or something. That's just fucking cool. And you can get right up on them and, you know, they'll do their theatrics for you and there's, there's nothing like it, you know. So the big shows are awesome. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I saw Pink Floyd and Roger Waters and all those guys. You're not going to see those guys in a small venue. It's physically impossible, you know. But in at least those bands, they put on such a show. You know, they have props and shit falls down from the ceiling and all kinds of stuff. But, mm-hmm. you know, you're not going to get those carryovers from, from the 80s and 90s playing shows like that anymore. I mean, ACDC will still play shows like that. But, you know, they're, they're one of the very few. Guns N' Roses doesn't even play stadiums anymore, you know. So, um, it's it's... The the answer to your earlier question is, would it have the same impact? And I, I would say that I don't think it'd have the same impact, but I, but I think that it would still have a big impact for sure because there's still a, a level of talent that's there, and it did lead to other things. I just think at that time, the the 80s and 90s was such a such a crowded time frame because that was I think when music with with MTV, everything came out of the woodwork. Everything was experimental. Everything was was a transition point. And then when that kind of went away, when MTV pretty much became more about shows and less about music, people stopped giving a shit about what bands looked like and and all that stuff. It just kind of went by the wayside. It became a non-factor. And a lot of those bands that were banking on an image versus their music, even if they were super talented, just they kind of lost relevance because people stopped looking at them. Well, it's kind of funny because, like, uh, like you said, as far as its uh, its place as a transition, and I, I think about this myself. Like, they were kind of the start of blurring the lines of where music came from, really. Uh, yeah. Because you know, like you, like we talked about, you know, the the beginning of the hair the hair revolution, if you will, was the Sunset Strip. We we all know Motley Crue. Oh hell yeah! You know, L.A. Guns and you know band, <laughs> bands like that were were Sunset Strip bands, but like we mentioned, you had Bon Jovi, Cinderella, Skid Row, you know, uh, coming out of the woodwork, coming from the East Coast. And uh, they were giving that quote unquote Sunset Strip sound from a completely different format of the of the world. And then, of course, it influenced other people like one of the people I'm going to drop your draw here for a minute. <laughs> started, started bringing other bands around like the Moscow Moscow hair metal band Gorky Park. Gorky Park. Yeah, I remember Gorky Park. They were fucking terrible. I'm sorry. <laughs> they, their first album wasn't that bad. I mean, they had, uh, they had a nice ballad in uh, Try to Find Me. and uh, That's and, true. And, uh, the, you know, Bang wasn't too bad. Uh, but <laughs> that cover of My Generation by The Who was horrible. That was, dude, <laughs> that was cringeworthy. Like, at best, it was cringeworthy. But, yeah, I mean, that. but, you know, that, that era... Even get back to the you're right the, the kind of that the Soviet explosion in the states. I mean, it was all about they were so much into like Levi's and blue jeans and kind of our culture, and they wanted to embrace our culture and and you know they really tried to make it accessible. I think uh, you know in the same way that you know kind of like the Scorpions came out of Germany mm-hmm. and um, they really had a very American sound. You wouldn't have listened to them singing and be like, wow, this is a great German band. You know, 
um, you just wouldn't have. Except, same thing, except, you know, with balls to the wall. Um, they were kind of on that verge of almost being hair metal, but they just kind of went a little bit more harder edge. Mm-hmm. But they were all glammed up with their fucking spandex and their tight pants and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, but <laughs> Corky Park, man, I, I'd forgotten all about those guys. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go buy that album now. <laughs> Good luck finding it. But Good I luck mean, finding it, yeah. I'll import it from Russia. But, I mean, it, it was kind of like the first era that, that kind of blurred that line. Like, you know, even even rap during the time was East mm. Coast, West Coast, and, and everything else. But, you know, the, the rock scene, particularly the glam rock scene, the line blurred where it was just, yeah. it was glam rock. It didn't matter if it was a British band, a Russian band, a German band. They were glam rock. It wasn't East Coast rap, West Coast rap. It wasn't Seattle grunge. It wasn't... You know, yeah, no, it's true. It was it was it was about the style, not about the region. You know, and and so that definitely was a transition. But I, you know, one of the biggest things from that I think came from glam rock, and I, I even attributed it to myself. Like when I started off the show, I asked you about uh, uh, influences to your music. To give you an example, some of my influences as a songwriter, because I'm a singer-songwriter mainly, is uh, like I could point out, and my shit's eclectic, okay? So, of course, there's Trent Reznor, Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> I love that word. Yeah, Trent Reznor, Nine Inch Nails, and, and Kurt Cobain, Nirvana, you know, and uh, I draw influences from uh, James Hetfield and Metallica, and uh, one of my all-time influences is Jim Morrison of the Doors. But I find myself also drawn to Sebastian Bach and Dave Salbo. You know, I find myself drawn to the writing styles of like Jack Russell, like I said, the the uh, House of Broken Love. You know, sometimes it's not just the body of work, but just one particular song that that songwriter grabbed for me. And, And nine times out of ten, it was some glam song that somebody forgot about. You know, I you mentioned uh, Sebastian and Snake, and I think uh, that first Skid Row album was really heavy. I mean, the guitars on that were so good, and uh, Youth Gone Wild, I think, became kind of the the new anthem for the glam movement mm-hmm. um, when they came out. And uh, Sweet Little Sister was my favorite song off that. Because it was just a nasty song, right? It was just such a fucking like wow. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that was a those were great songs. I, I think that they had something above a lot of those bands. So I, I can see why that you would have taken inspiration from that because you know they Skid Row was different at that time. Even among that style, they really stood out. They were the new kids on the block in the glam scene when they came out. They were and they fucking hit it hard when they came out. And uh, everybody wanted to look like Sebastian Bach. All the chicks just lost their shit over this guy. And I remember thinking, why do you like a dude that looks like a girl? <laughs> you know, as a Sebastian Bach, he had the fucking pipes, though, man. That guy's range was fucking insane. Oh, absolutely. And I, you're right. I mean, you know, he was he was so fucking skinny. Like you, you watch the uh, Wim- <laughs> Wembley Stadium concert. Uh, Skid Row at Wembley Stadium. I mean, if he turns sideways and stick his tongue out, it looks like a zipper. But I mean, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, a zipper with hair. But I mean, you know, Sebastian. Yeah, was the 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 chops, and it's funny because my tag team in, in pro wrestling was Youth Gone Wild, named after the song. We used the song. Oh, as crazy! Our entrance. Um, it definitely was. But it's kind of funny because you say the first album was really really heavy. The only thing I got to disagree with is it was heavy for glam of the time, mm-hmm. but it was forgive this term here, but it was pussy compared to Slave to the Grind. 
Yeah, you know, it's really funny. From a Sonic standpoint, you're right. Um, for whatever reason, though, I just I, I couldn't pick up on it. And uh, even when I was still into it, Slave to the Grind, it was it was slower, and the guitars were like sludgier, and they had more more riffs versus more licks. Right. Um, so it's definitely a heavier album than than the debut album. But I it's it didn't have the same impact on me as when that first one came out. And, but, I mean, you're comparing that to, like, you know, Motley Crue and Cinderella. And, you know, at that time, it was like Britney Fox was super popular. Winger. And <laughs> so a lot of those bands, <laughs> Winger. I'm not going to lie. I, I had a couple fucking Winger albums, you know. Yeah. Uh, Reb Beach, he's awesome. You know, Kip Winger, he's a, he's a great ballerina. And, uh, you know, he's, remember, he's kind of a creeper. I don't, I don't remember Winger's, <laughs> but, uh, I don't remember Winger's <laughs> guitars, but he, he could shred. Like, he got no Yeah, that's, that's, that's Reb Beach. Was that Reb um, Beach? Re- Reb Beach. That, that was um, his name? Okay. That, that was the, their guitarist name, yeah. That, well, their lead guitarist name. And uh, they actually have three guitarists because Kip also played guitar and bass. Um, but, but anyway, I digress. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they were, they were super. Winger was just they, they were just they capitalized on it, but they, they never, you know, fucking they were, they were, they were very short lived. Um, Skid Row had pretty lasting, you know, presence on the scene up until the time they broke up. You know, a few, few albums later, but uh, yeah, man, it's it's a uh, slave to the grind. I can't believe I'm talking about this. By the way, it's so funny. Um, <laughs> slave to the grind was definitely a good album, but same thing man i don't know what it was but like to this day i i can't even name a song off that album um it just didn't hold me i think and maybe because it was at that point i had already started moving into a heavier direction and uh i i had kind of dropped that whole movement as i as i really wanted to identify more with like the thrash and the speed metal i mean i was gotten gotten into metallica pretty heavy at that point and right. uh testament and slayer and you know that was that was pretty much the beginning of that movement for me but you know even into those times i kind of still went back and i'd hear those songs on the radio and i'd be like yeah dude this was the shit back then (laughs) (laughs) well since since you transitioned out of the glam rock into the uh, thrash and i i guess for that era it was still kind of the new wave of british heavy metal american the american style yeah for sure the the early 90s was really i think the equivalent of the new wave of british heavy metal you can call it the the new wave of american glam metal (laughs) well since since you were going through that transition it's a perfect transition for this question then when you were transitioning into the thrash into the death into the 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 black uh subgenres of metal did you find yourself finding influences in those genres that's a fantastic question i i think the answer is is yes because what was happening was whether or not it was an influence is really hard to say but you could definitely hear telltale signs and a prime example of that is that bands like metallica still had ballads right they had like um you know one of course which is actually the song that put metallica on the mainstream map Mm -hmm. and it was the the lightest song they'd ever done although for all intents and purposes that's a heavy ass fucking song especially you know as it progressed past the the clean vocals and then um 
you know, you had Fade to Black from Ride the Lightning, which had the clean vocals. And so, and then, you know, Testament, they had their ballads. In fact, they had a song that was just called The Ballad. Mm -hmm. So a lot of those thrash bands, especially in the early days, you know, as they were kind of getting heavier and heavier, they were struggling now with that, I want to be heavy, but I really need to get something that'll get me on the radio. And so I'm not going to go so far as to say that those bands wrote sellout songs because they're good songs and they still had thrash elements. But I think that they were struggling to find out, hey, who is my audience? Is my audience going to be the diehard thrashers or is my audience going to be the crossovers that are just now finding my stuff and they don't really know where they want to go with it? So I would say that those 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 influences and relics were were definitely there. Um I don't know if I'd say that it really went too far past that early, you know, late 80s, early 90s, maybe into the early 2000s as some of the bands that stayed in that thrash genre genre still kind of had those elements. But when you start getting into, you know, the, the different, um, you know, like death metal, for instance, that, that, that influence is pretty much all but wiped away. Although you can see that some of the guitar virtuosos that ended up into those bands that were using really advanced technical riffs because these guys came from like, you know, Guitar Institute and Musicians Institute and, and they became really technically proficient that you can see a lot of stuff that was very uh, predominant, you know, back in the days with like, you know, Jason Becker and the, and Marty Friedman who ended up in Megadeth, but he was in Cacophony and, and you know, a lot of those guys that, that had a lot of, you know, what the glam guys were doing. Um, you know, Paul Gilbert, for instance, uh, is, is still super highly regarded and, and he was kind of a, a rocky glammy kind of a guy at the outset. And then now he's just kind of a, he's just a shredder, you know? And so I think a lot of that stuff carried over as far as the lead guitarists go in, into metal for sure. I don't think many other techniques carried over, but the, the lead guitar in metal, uh, for those that are like considered themselves to be accomplished metal musicians, still have a lot of those same techniques because those were schooled techniques. You know, CC DeVille was a fantastic fucking guitarist and he's 100% self-taught. And you can hear a lot of the stuff that he played really was very metal um, outside of Poison. Who knows what he could have done in like a thrash band, but that motherfucker had some chops and he could shred and he could play awesome riffs. And uh, he experimented with some down tunings and things like that, which kind of became the calling card of a lot of heavier music. Mm -hmm. um, so, so you can definitely hear kind of that element in in some of the some of the early metal. You could definitely get that carryover for sure. Well, I, I think I think I I slightly agree with you in the fact that like it, it didn't carry over predominantly as as strong as it did during the American wave of of, of metal. Um, to to modern day but I, I do disagree a little bit i think there is kind of a resurgence in some of the more commercial friendly uh quote-unquote metal bands again i may get shot for this but like i'm pointing <laughs> i'm pointing at bands like uh trivium or yeah event sevenfold uh with the with the ideas of sinister gates solos the, the event sevenfold specifically you know sinister, sinister gates uh solos the the uh the uh uh, harmonic guitars between him and and Jackie Vengeance, and of course the vocal harmonies that that the whole band comes in. That's very much '80s rock. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you that. That's that's a that is actually a, a very prime example of that coming back. Um, can't say I've ever really been too much into Avenged Sevenfold, so my my knowledge of them is pretty minimal. 
but those elements are definitely there um, and they, they definitely I think made made an impact um, when like the new metal bands became popular like you know you're disturbed and and stuff like that kind of hit the scene and then avenged did come back in with a lot of retro elements mm-hmm. so um, yeah dude you, you nailed that one right on the head that's that's pretty accurate that 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 was something I was thinking about. I mean, maybe not so much in the underground or or in the uh, subgenres of, of of metal, like you know, but uh, at least in the commercial commercialized metal that you still hear on the radios, I, I have started to notice some of the trends of of that genre coming back. You know, yeah, and you know, bands like uh, like Dragon Force, for instance, um, they are kind of a harkening back to those old, you know cacophony days where it's just like really just lightning blistering speed kind of set behind a, a pretty medium paced rhythms but you know some really complex riffing though and i think dragon force is one of those bands that not a lot of people really know them by name but then when you hear one of their songs you go i know that song and they are very reminiscent of some of that era as far as like the guitar solos and some of the movements go for sure it's funny whenever you mention dragon force the first thought that ever comes to my mind when i when i listen to them is like this is iron maiden turn with the speed turned up yeah, yeah right <laughs> I, I hear a lot of maiden influence in uh in uh uh dragon force especially in the song valley of the, Dam- of the damned yeah you know when i think of dragon force i think of guitar hero and rock band because I spent uh, many years working for GameStop selling those games, and I don't remember if it was Rock Band. I think it was Rock Band uh, 4, maybe. But uh, there was a Dragon Force song on there, and like that was the mark of if you could master that song is if you could play Dragon Force on hard, and fuck no, I could never even get close to that. But it's kind of funny you mentioned that, because that was going to be one of the questions I was going to throw out there, too. Do you think video games have, have helped the resurgence of the 80s hair scene and maybe taken it out of the uh, out of the obscurity of, oh, that was just an 80s fan with, with gimmick clothing and, and brought new fans in, you know, playing the, the video games like Guitar Hero or, or Rock Band and happening to jam out to Living on a Prayer or uh, Girls, Girls, Oh, Girls. fuck yeah. Yeah, 100%, because, you know what, I, I don't, here's the cool thing about, like, Guitar Hero, for instance, which was predated Rock Band, but you would play that game, and you found yourself liking every goddamn song on that game, regardless of what you grew up listening to, because now it was part of an experience that you had to master, and you had that, I'm playing this song, and you had the setting at this stadium, and then, you know, when when Guitar Hero World Tour came out and they introduced the drum element, and of course Rock Band was in the game by this point, and now you had two competing companies, then it became, who can I license? Who can I, who can I out-license these guys with? And, and all tons of bands from like the 80s and 90s ended up on, on those games. And, you know, it, was, it wasn't just that era, of course. You ended up with, you know, some classic rock stuff. You know, like, Tommy was on there mm-hmm. as a song to play. You had, like, Police, you know, Sting songs on there, which was super badass. Synchronicity 2, which I thought was one of my favorite songs to play on, <laughs> on uh, Guitar Hero. Um, yeah, and, of course, Dragon Force. And, you know, ton- tons of cool bands, like, ended up on there. And so I, I credit that particular movement in games for really introducing people especially younger crowds to bands that were around before they were born and then them getting new light and you know i think it's it, to kind of mark that uh, even more so 
um, one of the designers uh, of of Guitar Hero Three was a gentleman named Craig and Lum, who uh, played in or plays currently. He's in Heathen. Um, he played in Exodus for a while. He w- he worked for Activision. He was a game developer. He did you know Tony Hawk's Downhill Jam. He worked on um, some a couple of racing games, and uh, he's Cragen is fucking fantastic. And his old bands, uh, you know, Prototype also had songs on there, and he became quite well known for that. And so um, stuff like that, you have musicians who are actually developing some of these games. Um, huge impact on the stuff, not only the stuff that was chosen, but how the games themselves played out and made you feel like there was an experience. And now you have an experience to tie in to the Sonic experience. It's just, it's the perfect matching of audio and, and visual. And I'm to this day, those are probably among my, my favorite games ever. There was also a uh, rocksmith. Uh, where you actually plug in your real guitar to and yeah, and that's that's when you realize that all that work you put into fucking Guitar Hero didn't mean dick, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because you realize that you can't play guitar, fool. You were hitting four buttons, and your it was a rhythm game, and it was timing based. Mm-hmm. And then you you buy Rocksmith, but um, I actually here's a funny story about Rocksmith. I got to prototype test Rocksmith before it launched. Oh, nice. Um, which was super badass. And I, I was at a conference for for GameStop, and I met the developers, and they gave me a they gave me a, a locked copy to take home with me and give them feedback on, and they also interviewed me at the show about what I thought about it because you know they had a guitar there, they had a Les Paul there, and uh, I plugged it in, and they they took me through all the steps on like you know hey here can you play guitar? I was like yeah I can play guitar, and they're like how good are you? Right? I'm like you know, I'm all right, and so they tailored the game to my skill level. And they just turned it on and said, here, go, see what you can do. And it was really cool. Um, nice. So I really liked that aspect of it. But I watched people try to play Rocksmith, and it was an epic fail. And it never really did that well. It, which is really a shame because it was it was set on a premise of like playing a video game but learning to play guitar. It, it seemed like a good aid. It, it's it, really sad. That- you know why it failed? Because people bypassed the training element, and they went straight to... I just want to fucking play the songs like Guitar Hero. So the training element in there, I went through it even as somebody who already knew how to play. I was like, this is really cool. This is really in-depth. And it did what it said it was going to do. People just didn't do it. They just didn't They didn't go there with it. And I was like, you guys are you're, you're missing the whole point. If you want to play fucking Guitar Hero, go play Guitar Hero, you know? Right. But if you want to play Rocksmith, this is, this is designed first and foremost as as an interactive instruction you know system and and people just for whatever reason they just didn't buy into that and it really kind of made me sad because the game tanked it just didn't do well that's a shame yeah but it leads me to the final thing that uh for this for this episode we'll 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 end it on this since we since we spent so much time on the glam rock scene and i promise not every episode is going to be glam rock it's just this one happened to be but uh here we are in 2020 the <laughs> turmoilish 2020 Thinking back on glam rock and its influence, it's the uh, it's steps from the 1980s to arguably 1990 blush, uh, where where it finally lost its mainstream appeal. Um, it has held a lot of hatred from other other fan bases uh, of music, including the metal genre. Yeah, 
course, it's had many names. Hairband, uh, butt rock, you know. <laughs> Does it deserve its hate? Oh, listen, I, I've been on both sides of this spectrum. Um, it, it's kind of a genre that I love to hate, I guess I always say. Does it deserve its hate? I, I think there are bands out there that came in thinking that they were all that and they were epic fails, you know? And so, yeah, I, I think that there's there are specific bands that were just bad. They're just terrible. And they just, you know, they... they I don't know. Mm-hmm. But as far as... I guess I'm of the opinion now that even though glam is super easy to make fun of, and trust me, I've done it. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it, it's there's something that if you grew up listening to it, even for a small fraction of time, a lot of those songs are timeless and you don't have to like them, but a mark of a good song is if you can hear that song and then you can sing that song or you can hum the tune to that song. And there's a lot of songs from that era that, that are still relevant today. Um, so again, if you can get past the imagery, you, you probably... And, and the labels, because, yeah, I mean, they, it did. It got labeled a lot of different stuff. I mean, butt rock was always my favorite. Uh, <laughs> you know, and I got called a butt rocker a lot when I was a kid. These fucking butt rockers, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I never got called, a, like, a glammy boy or anything like that. I, you know, it was always, you're a fucking butt rocker. And, um, this, you know, I'm wearing my Skid Row shirts and stuff like that. Even my, I had a Warrant shirt, you know. Mm-hmm. Um and warrant man i'm sorry dude those guys were terrible as much as i wanted to like them and i really tried i just they they provided that they were the right place the right time had the image and i bought into it and then i was like wow this is just really fucking bad you know so i i I think it's i don't think it's worth the hate that it gets but i understand the hate that it gets because the hate comes from the imagery right the hate Mm -hmm. comes from you know, kind of how they were classified as maybe they were guys that weren't, they didn't seem masculine. They didn't seem like they were singing manly songs and, and people criticize it. Like, dude, they're just trying to get chicks, you know, like, but it, who wasn't, you right. know, um, it was an era. I think that at its time when it happened, and I, I like to go back to D Snyder, you know, he really, he really was trying to do something extreme and different. You know, David Bowie did the same thing. You know, he, he tried to kind of go along those same lines. It was different. You know, it was definitely a very British flavor and maybe not metal. You know, with, it was very glam, Ziggy Stardust, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, you know, Iggy Pop, you know, had that kind of element to him too, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I just think that it's not deserving of the hate that it gets. And the, the hate that it gets is... is in my opinion, mostly based off the fact that people remember what those people look like. And that's really, it's just easy. To, it's just so easy to make fun of it. I mean, you, if you watch a video now, you look at the, look what the cat dragged in cover. You're going to laugh because that cover's fucking retarded. Oh, they were you know, it's chicks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, it's, it's crazy. You look at the early Motley Crue stuff, you know. It, yeah, it, how could you not make fun of it now? But back then, it was extreme. So if you were around back then, at some point you looked at that and said, wow, this is so different. This is so out there. This is so rebellious. This is so anti-system. This is what I want to be because it's just blowing people's minds, good or bad. It just it provided that, that sense of 
um, you know, individuality, I think. At some point when it started, I think that's really what it was going for. And, and then just like any other scene, people capitalized on it and the scene became saturated and then it, it died out, you know? So, and, you know, I guess whether or not you love grunge or hate it, you can basically thank grunge for killing glam, (laughs) you know, it's, uh, you know, so I, I I think that people that are musicians are way more open-minded to it. Um, people that are not musicians, um, it's really fucking easy to hate on it. So, because, you know, at least if you're a musician, you can look at a certain element and maybe respect it or, or maybe see what they're trying to accomplish. Um, you know, and then you look at a lot of those guys now, and even a lot of those dudes are, they're into heavier shit themselves, you know? So you look back and go, eh, you know, I did this for a while, and now I don't do this anymore. So I don't know. Who knows? You know, in 20 years, I'll look back on my, my death metal phase, and I'll be like, man, like what a pussy I was. Death metal and Satan and all that really pussy shit. <laughs> <laughs> Well, see, I'm gonna, you know? I'm, I'm gonna slightly disagree with you, uh, <laughs> with the warrant thing. With the with, <laughs> okay, I agree. The band itself was garbage. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> Janie Lane was a great songwriter. He was a great hey, he was a he was a good performer, and he's a cool dude. You know, but uh, God, God rest him. But uh, that's the only thing I had to argue. It's like, wait a minute. Janie, Janie was, was hot, you know, the rest of the, band, yeah. eh. but, but Janie was hot, but, uh, I had the, I had that dirty, rotten, filthy, stinking rich t-shirt with the big fat guy that was covered in money. I had mm-hmm. that t-shirt and I thought it was so cool. <laughs> but, uh, I think, I think, I don't think butt rock deserve okay, butt rock, <laughs> glam rock deserves, <laughs> <laughs> damn it, <laughs> just completely destroyed my point I'm about to make. I don't think it deserves the hate and, and discredit that it gets, uh, if if I call anything for for glam rock for modern day, I call it a great gateway drug. Sure. Um, for people who don't listen to hard rock, heavy metal, you know, and you want to you want to experience it, but you don't want to automatically get slammed in the face with somebody like Cannibal Corpse, you know, <laughs> you know. Perfect example: my kids. My kids grew up with their mother, and their mother had them listening to you know out here in Philadelphia. It's Q one hundred two, but. You know, basically the the hip hop R and B crap that they call music nowadays, and uh, I don't care. I, my show, I can say it. It's crap. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, and and they were all about, it. and of course they were about Hannah Montana and all that shit too. And sure. I started introducing them to metal, and they didn't get Ozzy, and they didn't get Metallica yet because it was just a little too heavy for them. But when I introduced them to Bon Jovi, to Poison, where there's kind of a dance beat to it, but at the same time, they, they start hearing the actual musicianship that was in the music. And, and again, like you said, it's not like they were looking at the album covers or whatever. Right. You know, they started uh, getting an, gaining an appreciation for rock and metal through that. The same way as like myself, I gained an appreciation for hard rock and heavy metal because my mother and grandmother were teaching me fucking Everly brothers and, 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 uh, <laughs> you know, the beach boys and Elvis Presley, you know, it was a great, I think, I think glam rock is a great gateway, uh, gateway step into a larger music scene, uh, for people who have not grown up with that scene to begin with. So yeah. I, I think that's its main legacy and, and relevant or uh, relevance in, in today's society is I think it definitely bridges the gap between people who prefer the dance, the club, the beat, and the people who prefer the mosh, the metal, the Satan, 
you have that transition to allow you to discover a larger world. Yeah, for sure. Musically. Uh, Mike, I had an absolute blast in here bull- bullshitting with you about music. I hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs> oh, thank you, brother. This this went down a lot of rabbit holes that I didn't expect. So, uh, yeah, I'm always nostalgic about all the eras of music. So uh, it's been an honor to to come on and, and hang out with you and uh, and break the fourth wall and, you, you know, uh, carry on with the a topic that is very near and dear to my heart. So thank you for inviting me out. And uh, I'm looking forward to turn the tables on you here in a couple of weeks. Oh yeah, I know. I know I got to come in, but I'll definitely have you back on, especially on in the pit. Cause I, I, as we were talking, I already had two other uh, topics come to my head. One of which I thought you might appreciate being a thrash guy is uh, who's the better, who's the better vocalist for anthrax, Joey or John Bush. (laughs) We'll save that one. There you go. <laughs> the other one I'll keep to myself. Nice. <laughs> Guys, if you enjoyed this episode and, of course, breaking the fourth wall, make sure you hit that thumbs up button. Like, share, comment, subscribe. Check out all the other great podcasts of Relativist Entertainment. And, of course, if you prefer us in audio-only format, we got you covered. Check us out on Anchor.fm, Apple iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever quality podcasts can be heard. And one more time, Mr. Mike, tell them where they can find you. You can find Misery Point Radio on all of those same platforms where you can find Realm of the Mist and all that awesomeness. Uh, check it out on YouTube, iHeartRadio, Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, you name it. Uh, and, uh, of course, feel free to shoot me an email anytime, miserypointradio at gmail.com. If you got questions, comments, you want to really dive deep into more hair metal, you want to you wanna call me names because I made fun of Warrant, by all means, man, call me out. I'll, I'll go down that rabbit hole with you. I, I, I'm I'm debating like this is going to be connected to breaking the fourth wall, but I'm debating if I'm not going to release it as an individual episode as well for for you know in the pit, and I know we're going to catch so much flack in the comment section. <laughs> How can you guys hey, if you want to question my musical credibility, I'll fucking take you on. Yeah, you can question mine, and I can't argue <laughs> it. But yeah, you go ahead, fight him. <laughs> I've learned in the uh, hour and a half I've been sitting here talking to him that this guy's a fucking metal encyclopedia. Good luck. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, thank you very much for joining us, and we'll catch you on the next In the Pit! Yeah! Have a good night. Hey, guys, it's Chris from Realm of the Mist Entertainment. If you enjoyed this video, please hit that thumbs-up button. Like, share, comment, subscribe. Check out all the other great podcasts that can be found on Realm of the Mist Entertainment's YouTube channel or our sister channel, Sounds Dicey Gaming, for all your tabletop needs. And if you prefer your podcasts in audio-only format, check out Realm of the Mist Entertainment on Anchor.fm, Apple iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever quality podcasts can be heard. To our Patreon supporters, we thank you very, very much. And if you're interested in being a Patreon supporter, please go over to patreon.com slash realm of the mist and just a dollar a month gives you exclusive content and helps our channel out greatly. Guys, again, thank you very much for joining us and we will see you on the next episode. <laughs>